Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that escaped convict, Ironjaw. That rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Greetings, travelers, and welcome to the second installment of Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast that came about since I am watching 31 horror movies that I have never seen in the month of October. If you happen to be listening to this on the YouTubes, it is also now coming out on iTunes thanks to Sticker Fridge. They are a great bunch of dudes that put out amazing podcasts and videos. Search Sticker Fridge to check out their projects. You can even see me in some of their shorts. This week is brought to you by... What? What, what do you mean there aren't any sponsors? I don't know. Did, did, did you hear from the audiobook site? Okay, well, what about that uh, ingredients right to your, your door thing? Really? N- no, I didn't reach out. Huh. Okay, um, well, in, in that case, on with the show. Number one, The Loved Ones, 2009, directed by Sean Byrne. A boy named Brent accidentally causes his father's death when he swerves the car they're both in to avoid a strange man in the middle of the road, which leads to him hitting a tree. Months later, he has a girlfriend named Holly, and they are both going to the high school dance. He is asked by a creepy girl named Lola to attend the dance, but turns her down since he's already going with his girlfriend. Lola's father then kidnaps him. He barely escapes after being put through hell. Lola and Brent, surprisingly enough, but not because of the car accident, are the killers. A ton of crazy things happen in this movie. Once Brent is kidnapped, there are several instances of torture porn, Syringe what looks like Drano to the neck, feet nailed to the floor with knives, a heart cut into his body with a fork. Personally, I would have chosen another implement for doing chest start. You just can't get those crisp lines and skin with a fork. And finally, a nice hole drilled right into his forehead. Why the drill hole, you ask? Not to kill. Lola and her father have been kidnapping and lobotomizing boys that she has had crushes on ever since she was a kid by drilling holes into their heads and then pouring in boiling water. They even lobotomized her mom. What do they do with the lobotomized kids? Throw them in the basement dungeon, of course, where they try to survive off of roadkill and dog-eat-dog type cannibalism. Brent ends up getting loose twice. The first time, he's pretty much instantly recaptured, but the second time, he goes to town on the dad with a knife pulled from his own foot, and then pushes the dad into the pit to be eaten by the basement dwellers only to end there himself after a push from Lola. In the pit, Brett has to kill everyone's favorite trio, the Lombotomy Basement Boys, which makes him a killer as far as this dumb podcast is concerned, since they were just innocent boys just like Brent that ended up in a pit. 
The gore in this movie is incredibly well done. There's a razor slash and cleaver to the face, which are both disgusting. There's also some nice makeup after Lola gets hit by a police car, which Brent is driving to escape. After hitting Lola with the car, he then backs the car up to finish her off. Brent at one point gets salt thrown in his wounds, which is cringe-inducing, especially with the screams the actor makes. But a little later, he also ends up getting glitter all up in there. And that skewed me out even more. New band name, Glittered Wound. There's a lot that goes on in this movie, and I haven't even begun to hit on everything. Another warning, there is a dog that dies, uh, but most of what happens to the pooch is off screen. You basically just see him in his bloody makeup. He's an amazing dog actor, though, because I really believe that he was injured. Fantastic, and I hope to see more work from him. My only gripe with this film is the usage of a low frame rate slow motion effect that is used a little bit too much. Well, using it at all is too much in my opinion, unfortunately. And that's really the only gripe I have. Everything else is amazing. I definitely recommend checking this out if you're into horror thrillers and can handle some realistic modern gore. Number 2. The Stuff, 1985. Directed by Larry Cohen. A man tastes the ground, which leads to a new dessert phenomena, except the new tasty treat is actually a sentient substance that ends up taking over the bodies of the people that consume it. The day is saved by a saboteur turned hero after he finds out the facts and enlists a crazy militia general who broadcasts a radio warning which causes people to rise up and destroy the stuff. The stuff and corporate greed are the killers. First things first, this movie literally starts off with an old miner seeing some gross bubbly white stuff on the ground and deciding to eat it. I would say that the movie would have been better off without this slime origin story. People don't just eat ground goo. Maybe one guy, but he easily convinces another guy to just stick it all up in his mouth too. For an R-rated movie about people being filled with white stuff, this is pretty boring. There is some cool practical effect usage, but it's few and far between. Most of the stuff done with the goop is pretty interesting, even though a lot of it is obviously just showing the goop in reverse. One of the standout effects happens when the main character, a corporate espionage artist, punches an infected dude's jaw off. The main character has this heavy Louisiana accent, and that mixed with the terrible dialogue makes him pretty annoying from the get-go. A highlight of the film are the various forms of fake advertising for the stuff. They have jingles, commercials, and billboards throughout the movie, which are a lot of fun. There's a scene where a dog is supposed to be attacking his owner, but just acts like a sweet pup. Like a cute little teddy bear that couldn't hurt anybody, and it's, it's really strange that they're trying to pass this off as a vicious dog when he's obviously just playing. There's a character named Chocolate Chip Charlie that considers himself a kung fu master. He was probably the best character, but he unfortunately has little screen time and ends up losing his head when slime comes gushing out. Another enjoyable part of the movie is when a kid character just starts going apeshit in a grocery store to destroy as much of the stuff as he can. The director, Larry Cohen, also wrote all three of the Maniac Cop movies, one of which I'll be talking about in a little bit. He seems to get a lot of praise, so I may need to check out some of his other movies he's directed to give him a fairer chance, since I didn't really love this movie. I'd say skip the stuff and watch something else. Number 3. 
Blood Punch, 2013, directed by Madeleine Paxson. After a bad girl named Skylar convinces a smart boy named Milton to join her in a breakout from a rehab facility to cook meth for her and her psychotic boyfriend Russell's big drug deal, a Groundhog's Day scenario blasts off after Milton is killed on sacred land. After numerous deaths and different attempts to end the loop, the solution to end the curse is found. Only a sole survivor can make it to the next day. Everyone is the killer. I really thought I would end up digging this movie a little bit more than I did, but once the credits finally popped up, I was a little glad it was over. It drug on quite a bit in some parts. That's not to say that I didn't find it enjoyable. There are some fun interactions and kills, the best being a cleaver thrown across the room to slit one of the characters' throats. For the most part, the movie was pretty well put together. For a film with an actual budget, the sound design was really strange. There is definitely an overuse of stock sounds, some of which barely match up with what was supposed to be making the sounds. I will say that this movie was really inspiring. It showed me that a lot can be done with just a few locations and characters. The practical effects were great for a small production. I wrote and directed a short film called The Bloody Reuben, which was released this year, and after seeing this movie and other first features like Jeremy Saulnier's Murder Party and Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, my motivation to try and put together an actual feature continues to rise. The three main characters are New Zealand actors that got their big break on Power Rangers RPM. Power Rangers RPM, get in gear! I watched a handful of episodes during the Twitch Power Rangers Marathon and really enjoyed it. It's kind of like a mix between Power Rangers and Mad Max. This is another movie that had its first big screening in Austin. This one premiered at the Austin Film Festival and won the Dark Matters Audience Award. I've been a big fan of the main male character, Milo Cawthorn, ever since I saw him in the metal and demon-infused horror comedy Deathgasm, a movie I absolutely love. I'd have to say, skip this one and watch Deathgasm instead. Number 4. Maniac Cop 2, 1990, directed by William Lustig. The Maniac Cop is still alive and continues his killing spree in order to discredit the police. Along the way he finds friendship when he meets a stripper killer. They then team up to break out death row inmates only for the Maniac Cop to turn his back on his new friend after the police commissioner admits to wrongly imprisoning the Maniac Cop and pardons him for the crimes he did not actually commit before being wrongfully convicted. This causes the heartbroken stripper killer to attack the Maniac Cop which ends with both of them falling to their deaths on fire. The Maniac Cop is the killer. Maniac Cop 2 was much more of an action-fueled thrill ride than the first one. Bruce Campbell and the other survivor from the original movie are killed off in the very beginning, which then makes room for a new man and woman to take the lead. The man whispers throughout the entire movie, and both him and the woman are never fleshed out enough for you to actually care about. This somehow makes you feel more attached to a character that considers himself a crusader against the horrors of the world than the good guys. It's Stephen Turkell, the stripper killer, whose charisma and optimism really make the film. Other than killing women that show him their boobs, he seems like a nice guy. The trailers would lead you to believe this is a movie about a maniac cop, but it is really a movie about a budding friendship between two killers and its unfortunate fallout. I really love the dynamic of the killers becoming friends and would love to see a movie that had buddy killers instead of buddy cops. Things that the maniac cop loves, murder, car crashes, throwing people, things he hates, windows, the police, 
when his friends get arrested. Overall, this movie was incredibly enjoyable, action-packed, and a good time. It is strange that the only likable characters end up being the murderers, though. Some interesting facts about the movie. The writer of this movie and the others in the trilogy is Larry Cohen, who was the director of the stuff that I talked about earlier. Danny Trejo is in the film for about 10 seconds. He's shown, but doesn't do anything. There is an amazing rap song about the Maniac Cop at the end of the movie, which I assume was mostly inspired by the Freddy Krueger rap songs. Honestly, every horror movie should end with a rap. I was fortunate enough to be joined by Ali, Austin, and Sarah for this one. Now they'll have up to 30 seconds to speak their mind about the movie and everyone's favorite segment, 30 Seconds to Live. If you listen closely, you might even hear a cameo by Allie's dog, Jellybean. First up, we have Allie. All right, so we just watched Maniac Cop 2. It was a great movie. Um, I think probably the my favorite part was the Maniac Cop walking through glass um, instead of using a door like a normal person. I guess because he's a maniac. Um, I also thought it was pretty good how everybody belittled women the entire film. That was... Pretty hilarious because the women didn't seem to get slowed down that much, so I appreciated that part as well. Um, overall, A plus and dead. Austin. So yeah, Maniac Cop two. That was that was a good one. Um, you know, I'm probably gonna go buy that Maniac rap song on iTunes now. The very uh, we heard at the very end, but yeah, Maniac Cop two. That was um, that was a very interesting movie. I saw a lot of people die, a lot of a lot of misogyny, a lot of women getting murdered. Um, a lot of bad male actors. Uh, I would watch it again. Yeah, it was awesome. Dead. And Sarah. Maniac Cop 2 is a nonstop thrill ride. Lots of heinous killing. And I'm pretty sure I have a crush on the hooker killer, Stephen Turkel. And uh, also it's the best buddy movie I've ever seen with the best movie specific rap song in the credits. Boom. 23 seconds. Also dead. Number five, Detention, 2011, directed by Joseph Kahn. A mass slasher begins killing high school kids. The killer is dead set on murdering loser girl Riley. Riley and other students, like the boy she has a crush on, Clapton, work together to defeat the killer using time travel to save the world. The nerd boy Sander is the killer. This movie is incredibly self-aware and chock-full of pop culture references. It's also a hyper-stylized film, which may turn some people off, but I loved it. The banter between the characters is nothing you would actually hear in the real world. People just don't spew an obscure reference out of their mouth every time they open it. I didn't really have a huge gripe with this, since I'm a sucker for pop culture. Even as someone who enjoys references, the amount jammed in this movie is insane, and they do take you out of the movie a bit at times. The gore effects in this film are well done, especially since it uses CGI blood. Surprisingly, the CGI blood is used in a way that actually works to either complement a scene or be ridiculous. The main killing weapons are a knife and a fire axe. The movie's slasher, Sander, wears a mask that resembles the movie within the movie's slasher killer, Cinderella. A lot of random, nonsensical stuff happens in this movie. There is a sequence where the gang pulls up Cinderella 3 on their phone to look into the killer's next move. The characters in Cinderella 3 are watching Slashing Beauty 4, 
The characters on Slashing Beauty 4 are watching Beauty Beast 5, where Ron Jeremy is the killer. It's absolutely ridiculous, but amazingly entertaining. I'd say that last sentence pretty much sums up the whole film. There are also some references that aren't just puked out of a character's mouth in this movie. For example, Billy the Jock character is part fly and has a TV for a hand in a flashback, as a reference to the works of David Cronenberg. A Freaky Friday situation also happens. It premiered in Austin like many others that I've watched, uh, this time at South by Southwest. Dane Cook is in the movie, but his presence doesn't hurt the film. Give this one a chance unless you can't stand full-on meta-masturbation. I feel you will love it or hate it. Number 6, Black Sunday, also known as The Mask of Satan, 1959, directed by Mario Bava. A witch and her servant are killed because of their practice of satanic sorcery. They are supposed to be burned so they can't come back to life by some nefarious mean, but it starts raining. The witch is placed in a tomb, and the servant is placed in a grave for murderers. Two centuries later, a professor accidentally opens part of the tomb and gets blood on the witch's face, giving her enough power to awaken her servant, who starts murdering and collecting blood to bring her back. The professor also becomes a pawn used by the witch after she uses her witchy eyes to steal a smooch from him. People die, and the witch gains strength. She attempts to possess a girl named Katya that looks exactly like her, only to end up being burned at the stake after the professor's assistant, who is in love with Katya, tells a mob which of the women is the true witch. Asa the witch, Javudo her servant, and Krubajan the possessed professor are the killers. This is Mario Bava's biggest film and is said to be one of the most influential films ever for the horror genre. After watching it, I can definitely see why. It's basically a much darker take on the old Universal films. The gloomy atmosphere is amazingly crafted with perfect set design and fitting music. Being a film from so long ago, I didn't expect there to be much gore, but the film actually has some incredibly gruesome scenes. In the beginning of the film, the witch gets what's called a mask of Satan, forcefully applied to her face. How is that done, you might ask? Well, you see, the inside of the mask of Satan has a bunch of nails sticking out towards the potential wearer. Think of an Iron Maiden, better yet, the Chokey from Matilda. Come to think of it, why was such a horrifying nail closet student torture device in that movie? I know that you're supposed to be scared of the Trunchbull, but the Chokey added a whole extra level of fear when I was younger. I just realized Matilda is definitely a horror movie. I digress. Members of a mob take this mask with spikes protruding towards the witch's face, put it on her as best they can by hand, then a man with a giant wooden mallet runs in to give it a powerful bash to make sure the nails go nice and deep into her flesh and bone. I'd say this is actually the most yeesh-inducing scene of the week. It's done incredibly well with the blood spraying out of the mask as it is hammered on. A character also gets his head burnt to a crisp, which is grossly great. All of the effects in the movie are fantastic. There are multiple scenes that stick with you due to the love and attention given to the effects. These include the witch's phases of coming back to life, an eye gouge, the mask application, face burn, skin branding, and a cross leaving a burn mark on a forehead. The only effect I didn't dig was the aging and reverse aging of the witch and Katya, but even that wasn't all that bad for the time. 
I saw the American version of the film and found out there were some differences due to the American rating system and other random changes. First off is the name. The name was changed from The Mask of Satan to Black Sunday. I believe this was done because you couldn't just say Satan in the title of a movie back in the day. The film kept that name in Britain and was banned for years. This hunch is also supported by the line that is changed from You too can find the joy and happiness of Hades to You too can find the joy and happiness of hating, which sounds much more like something Skeletor would say. It is said that the violent scenes were shortened, but I feel that they are still impactful. In the original Italian version, Javuto was actually Asa's brother instead of her servant. I don't know why they made him a servant in the American version. It makes much more sense that they are brother and sister. They both have huge portraits dedicated to them in the castle, and Javuda wears the flyest threads in the movie, which depict a huge silver dragon bejeweled on the chest, which for some reason is referred to as a griffin in the film, but it's obviously a dragon. I know that these older black and white films can be a bit hard to put on and watch, but if you've never seen an older horror movie, this is a great place to start. It's amazing, and I promise that you'll have a ton of fun watching it. Number 7. Inferno, 1980, directed by Dario Argento. After his sister sends him a letter that mysteriously vanishes, Mark begins investigating her disappearance. His sister Rose and others get close to uncovering the secret of the three mothers, only to end up dead. Finally, Mark discovers the truth that there has been a powerful witch that considers herself death in the depths of the apartment building where his sister was living. He discovers this at the end, right before it all burns down. Mater Tenenbrarum, the mother of darkness, is the killer. She uses her supernatural powers to create accidents and control animals and people to do her evil deeds. This movie is a sequel to Dario Argento's masterpiece, Suspiria. Both movies have more or less the same exact story. The problem is, where Suspiria shines, Inferno falls flat. The characters, music, and deaths are all forgettable in Inferno. None of the characters really have personality. Mark is a terrible main character. The actor who plays him is pretty awful, even by Argento standards. I don't think he gave a realistic reaction to anything that happened throughout the entire film. The only character that sticks out at all is the strange antique dealer named Kazanian, who has one of the few memorable scenes. Kazanian drowns a bag of cats. Right after he does so, he falls down in the same water and loses his crutches. Since he can't get up without them, he is swarmed by nearby rats. He yells out, Rats are eating me which prompts a nearby food truck man, who's under the spell of the witch, to run over and hack at the back of Kazanian's neck multiple times with a knife, killing him and offering his body to the sewer rats as tribute. Best character and best death. The iconic music from the progressive rock band Goblin, which set an unsettling tone throughout Suspiria, is completely absent in Inferno. There is one interesting choir song that is used multiple times, but it doesn't fill me with dread, like the eerie music from Goblin. The greatest sequence of the film is in the first 15 minutes, when Rose ends up going underwater after she drops her keys in a strange hole in the basement. Rose lowers herself into the hole that is filled with water to get the keys right after she drops them. 
She takes a look around at the beautiful flooded room she's now submerged in and then quickly evacuates due to a bunch of corpses popping up. The scene is fantastic and definitely my favorite part of the movie. Argento continues to use bright colors in his set design and lighting to really nail the visuals just like in Suspiria. Mario Bava also helped with the set design and perspective effects, which are incredible, and his son Lamberto was the assistant director. I feel like I've been a little harsh on this one, but since it has to be compared to Suspiria, which is an incredible and unique film that sticks with you, Inferno never comes close to that greatness. Go watch Suspiria instead. Thanks for listening to week two of Blank is the Killer. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you have any critiques on how it could be improved, or just want to shout at me, leave a comment, or whatever. Remember to hit me up if you're interested in appearing on the 30 Seconds to Live segment. It was great having some new voices this week. Thank you, Ali, Austin, and Sarah. Another big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on iTunes. They were the fantastic team I worked with to create the Bloody Reuben. I always love helping out on their projects. Search Sticker Fridge on YouTube for some great vid stuff, and on iTunes for more podcast action. As always, you've been listening to your boy, Josh Baker, a.k.a. your kindly grandmother, your ill-advised tramp stamp tattoo, and the alligator wearing a Speedo in the sewer. Tune in next week for my thoughts on seven more spooky movies. Ta-ta!